Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The UK and EU announce a new post-Brexit deal for Northern Ireland. The U.S. Supreme Court voices skepticism over Biden's student loan cancellation plan. Iran investigates the poisoning of hundreds of schoolgirls. Zelensky says the situation in Bakhmut is growing more and more difficult. A watchdog blames the U.S. withdrawal and lack of planning for Afghanistan's collapse. An Israeli-American is killed in a Jericho attack. The U.S. requests drug lord El Chapo's son to be extradited from Mexico. Canada bans TikTok from government devices. Rupert Murdoch says Fox hosts endorsed false election claims. And Twitter is reportedly under fire for allegedly censoring Palestinian public figures. In our top story, the United Kingdom and European Union announce a post-Brexit Northern Ireland deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, France 24, BBC News, NPR Online News and Associated Press. On Monday, the UK and the EU introduced the Windsor Framework, a deal meant to resolve issues and trade disputes over the Northern Ireland Accords. As part of Brexit, Britain signed an agreement with the EU, the Northern Ireland Protocol, to avoid a hard border with Ireland. This created a barrier for some goods moving from Britain and left Northern Ireland subject to some EU rules, even though it's no longer a member of the bloc. Under the new agreement, Goods from Britain to Northern Ireland will travel through a green lane with significantly reduced checks and paperwork and a separate red lane subject to normal checks will be reserved for goods that may move to the EU. The deal also introduces a Stormont break, which allows the Northern Ireland Assembly to raise objections to new goods rules. Meanwhile, the EU will be allowed to take remedial measures if Northern Ireland begins to diverge significantly from the bloc's rules. The Windsor framework comes more than six years after British voters chose to leave the EU and three years since the UK left the bloc. Northern Ireland depends on a power-sharing administration between unionists and nationalists, and its semi-autonomous government has been upended since last year when British unionist politicians walked out to protest trade rules. The Democratic Unionist Party, or DUP, has said it would analyze the deal's details before delivering its verdict. All right. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's begin the narratives with Narrative A from CNN. The New Deal is an important moment and marks a new stage in the relationship between the EU and the UK. It addresses the shortcomings of the Northern Ireland Protocol and delivers long-lasting solutions for trade rules that will work for the people of Northern Ireland. The Windsor Framework is a success. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. While the Windsor framework has so far been warmly received, it remains to be seen whether it will be enough to end the DUP's boycott. Previous trade agreements have been highly contentious, and there's no guarantee this deal will be popular. I just hope this doesn't affect the price of uh, shamrock shakes come St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yeah, I like those. Actually... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm s- sorry, Ireland, but actually I had the, uh, this summer I had the peach shake at Chick-fil-A. That's the new kid in town. Really? Peach oh shake, my goodness. Chick-fil-A. Yeah. Oh wow. Sounds like we have a contender. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. That's right. A new, uh, the peach shake has entered the chat. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. 
The Supreme Court is skeptical of Biden's student loan cancellation plan. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Associated Press, NPR Online News, Fox News, and Politico. The conservative-majority U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday voiced skepticism over whether it's within President Joe Biden's authority to implement his plan for student loan forgiveness by treating it as part of the COVID emergency. This case was brought by six Republican-led states. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a second case brought by two individual borrowers. The White House says 26 million people have already applied, and 16 million have already had their relief approved under the program. The six GOP-led states, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina, believe the Biden administration misused the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, also known as the HEROES Act, during the COVID pandemic. The case made it to the Supreme Court after an Eighth Circuit Court panel reversed a lower court ruling that said that states could not sue because they lacked standing. A district judge sided with the two students challenging the program in the second case. Previously, the conservative-leaning Supreme Court has ruled against the Biden administration in multiple cases regarding COVID-era policies, including vaccine rules and eviction moratoriums. A decision isn't expected for months. Thank you for the facts, Scott. The first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. The GOP and those suing to repeal Biden's loan forgiveness plan are doing it to block the president's agenda by knowing full well the benefits it would have. The Secretary of Education has the right to provide debt relief in the face of national emergencies, like the COVID pandemic, and the Supreme Court should prevent the Republicans' obstruction. And reason brings us the Republican narrative. Biden's plan to cancel student loan debt is not just irresponsible, it's unconstitutional. The executive branch does not have the power to spend $400 billion of taxpayer money without congressional approval. Hopefully this program is struck down and a constitutional way to address the bloated cost of higher education is found. And the nerds of Metaculus are saying that there's a 38% chance that the U.S. will forgive $10,000 of federal student loans per person before the year 2024. Disturbing news coming from Iran as they probe the poisoning of hundreds of schoolgirls. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, Iran International, NBC, BBC News, Independent, and Iran Wire. On Monday, Iranian officials confirmed they are investigating allegations that several schoolgirls have been deliberately poisoned across the country in an attempt to close girls' schools. The following day, Tasnim News Agency quoted Iran's health minister Baram Ainolahi as stating that the widespread poisoning of female students has been caused by a mild poison, but that further details were not within his ministry's duties. Police Chief Ahmad Raza Radan told semi-official ISNA News Agency on Tuesday that their priority was to find the origin of the poisonings prior to judging whether they were intentional or not. No one has been arrested so far. This comes after Iran's prosecutor general announced last week he would launch a criminal investigation into the apparent poisoning of up to nearly 700 girls since November. While no girls have died, dozens have suffered from respiratory problems, nausea, dizziness, and fatigue, believed to be the result of a toxic gas. At least 14 schools have allegedly been targeted across four cities, including the country's capital, Tehran. Most of the incidents took place in the holy city of Qom, where parents protested earlier this month outside the local government to demand explanations for the poisonings. Iranian women and girls have been in the front line of months-long nationwide demonstrations in the country, which have been quelled by security forces. 
Activists claim that more than 520 people have been killed and over 19,000 have been detained. All right, Iran Wire brings us the anti-Iran spin. While Iranian officials have described the poisoning as a deliberate criminal act, the Islamic Republic has failed to take actions to protect Iranian girls and bring to justice those responsible. This alone would amount to dereliction of duty, but worse still, the fact that women and girls have been the target of the ongoing crackdowns brings the government's own possible role into question. The international community must hold an external investigation. A pro-Iran narrative coming from Mare News. By launching a criminal investigation into these disgraceful attacks against schoolgirls, the Islamic Republic of Iran has demonstrated its commitment to encouraging Iranian girls to study, work, and think in a safe environment in order to become protagonists of the nation's progress. It is nonsensical and malevolent to try to blame Tehran for such incidents. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They say there's a 50% chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by January of 2036. This is a terrifying story and just awful, but it is interesting to draw that distinction. Maybe the rights of women are not the same in the uh, in Iran as they might be in the in the West or in the United States, but it doesn't mean they're trying to poison them necessarily. We don't no. need to lump this all together. Absolutely not. That's just extreme and brutal and disgusting. The conflict in Ukraine continues as we reach day 370 of the fighting, where the Bakhmut situation is growing more and more difficult, according to Zelensky. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the official website of President Zelensky, Gulf Today, Ukraine Forum, Daily Sabah, Ukranska Pravda, and the Associated Press. In his nightly address on Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said his troops faced an increasingly precarious situation in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut, where fierce clashes for control of the city have been ongoing for several months. The situation is getting more and more difficult, Zelensky said. The enemy is constantly destroying everything that can be used to protect our positions, to gain a foothold, and ensure defense. The message was echoed by the commander of Ukraine's ground forces, Colonel General Oleksandr Sirskai who on Tuesday described the situation as extremely tense. He continued, saying, despite significant losses, the enemy threw in the most prepared assault units of Wagner, who are trying to break through the defenses of our troops and surround the city. Ukrainian officials said two civilians were killed and 13 more injured in Russian attacks on the wider Donetsk region in the past day. Russian attacks were also recorded in the regions of Luhansk, Sumy, Dnipropetrovsk, Zaborizhia, as well as Kharkiv and Kherson. There were no additional reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Elsewhere, Russian authorities temporarily closed the airspace around and suspended all flights to and from St. Petersburg's Polkovo Airport on Tuesday after unconfirmed reports suggested that an unidentified object had been spotted in the sky near the transport hub. The restrictions were later lifted and Russia's defense ministry claimed the airspace was closed due to a training exercise used to simulate an emergency. Meanwhile, an explosion was recorded overnight in the southern Russian region of Krasnodar Kray, setting fire to a Rosneft oil refinery in the city of Tupais. Russian officials did not acknowledge the blast, but said they had foiled a Ukrainian drone attack in the same region. Further afield, China accused the U.S. of outright bullying and double standards after a number of Chinese entities were placed on U.S. sanctions list on Monday. The country's foreign ministry spokeswoman, Mao Ning, said, While the U.S. has intensified its efforts to send weapons to one of the parties to the conflict, resulting in an endless war, it has frequently spread false information about China's supply of weapons to Russia, taking the opportunity to sanction Chinese companies for no reason. 
Thanks, Scott, for the update. A pro-Russian narrative is coming from TASS. Russian forces are continuing to capture towns on the outskirts of Bakhmut and progressing with their plans of encircling the city. Its capture is important as it will pave the way to securing the rest of the Donetsk region. And U.S. News & World Report brings us the anti-Russia narrative. Fierce fighting has already been going on in Bakhmut for months, and even if Russia prevails, it will have lost so many men and so much equipment that the result could hardly be celebrated. A Moscow victory in the region might be a symbolic gain, but would provide little strategic benefit in the wider conflict. There's a nerd narrative, and it says there is a 20% chance that Russia will capture or surround a large Ukrainian city before June 1st, 2023. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. In our next story, according to a watchdog report on the Afghan collapse, they blame a withdrawal of American forces and a lack of planning. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, New York Post, USA Today, and First Post. A report by the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction released on Monday claimed that years of problems with planning and U.S. oversight, along with the withdrawal of American troops, contributed to the collapse of the Western-backed government in Kabul in 2021. The report also claimed that the withdrawals announcement earlier in 2021 destroyed the morale of Afghan soldiers and police who had long relied on the U.S. military's presence for their own protection, as well as to ensure the Kabul government paid their salaries. Watchdog John Sopko also blamed the Trump administration's deal with the Taliban, known as the Doha Agreement, for instilling a sense of abandonment in both Afghan forces and the general public. The report disclosed that American troops left behind a total of $7.2 billion in military equipment, including at least 78 aircraft, over 9,000 air-to-ground munitions, over 40,000 vehicles, and more than 300,000 weapons. The report, mandated by Congress immediately after the fall of Kabul, claimed that both the Pentagon and Department of State were unresponsive to some of its requests for information. But in their own official responses, the government agencies said they cooperated with the investigation and disputed some of the findings. The U.S. and Taliban signed the Doha Agreement in 2020 under the Trump administration, which the incumbent Biden administration went through with in 2021, withdrawing all U.S. forces as the Taliban swept the country after 20 years of war. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Republican narrative from the New York Post. The evidence continues to mount that the Biden administration's rushed and chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan directly led to the fall of Kabul and the Taliban returning to power. There's no excuse for the unjust suffering the Afghan people have endured since then, all because Biden wanted to score some cheap political points. While it was Trump who signed the Doha Agreement, it was ultimately Biden who executed a botched withdrawal. And Vox gives us a democratic narrative. The U.S.'s disastrous invasion and occupation of Afghanistan under George W. Bush, not Biden's withdrawal, are to blame for the fall of Kabul and the current security crisis. The fact that Afghan security forces crashed immediately following the U.S. withdrawal indicates that the security situation was simply unsustainable and the collapse was essentially inevitable. There are, of course, valid criticisms of the withdrawal, but most have been unnecessary partisan attacks against Biden. Yeah, I think watchdog John Sopko lost to the honky-tonk man back at WrestleMania 2, right? That's, uh... <laughs> I, believe he, I believe he did. Yeah, yeah, I want to look into it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> An Israeli-American is killed in a Jericho attack. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the Associated Press, Al Jazeera, and Jerusalem Post. An Israeli-American identified as 26-year-old Elan Ganellis was killed in a drive-by shooting Monday near Beit Ha'avara, 
an Israeli settlement outside of Jericho. The shooters are still unknown but assumed to be Palestinians. Israeli officials said the gunman carried out multiple drive-by shootings along a major highway outside Jericho, though the only reported casualty was Ganellis. The U.S. Department of State also confirmed that Ganellis was a U.S. citizen. Ganellis, a recent Columbia University graduate from West Hartford, Connecticut, will reportedly be buried in Israel before his parents return to the U.S. to sit Shiva. The attack, after which the shooter and accomplices set their vehicle on fire and fled, followed settler riots earlier near Nablus over the shooting of two Israelis by Palestinian gunmen on Sunday, for which Israel sent hundreds of troops to the northern West Bank. The riots in Huara and other villages left one Palestinian dead, dozens of buildings burned, and around 95 people injured from tear gas. Israel has launched regular raids throughout the West Bank following a spree of Palestinian attacks last year, including a raid in Nablus last week that killed 11 people and injured over 100. A Palestinian gunman also opened fire near a synagogue last month in an East Jerusalem settlement, killing seven people. Thank you for the facts, Scott. Let's look at the first spin. It is a pro-Israel narrative coming from Times of Israel. The perpetrators of this cruel terrorist attack must be held accountable. Elon Ganellis, a young man with his whole life ahead of him, was killed in cold blood by Palestinian terrorists. The settle rampage on Sunday was, of course, barbaric and monstrous. But that doesn't justify the killing of an innocent young man. Israeli forces must pursue these terrorists and acquire justice for Ganellis' grieving family. And the pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. No one wants to see killings in the Holy Land, but it's the occupation that has caused these tragedies. Palestinians are facing a state-backed campaign of ethnic cleansing and are lashing out against their colonizers. Emboldened by international silence after killing more Palestinians last year than in any other year since the Second Intifada, the occupation is becoming even more violent. The United States requests El Chapo's son be extradited. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, CBS, Reuters, El País, and Sky News. According to the Mexican government, the U.S. has requested that Mexico extradite Ovidio Guzman, the son of jailed drug lord Joaquin Guzman, known as El Chapo. Ovidio was arrested in January for allegedly helping run his father's infamous Sinaloa drug cartel. Ovidio was initially arrested in 2019 before security forces freed him after his cartel waged a war in response. He's accused by the U.S. of helping oversee around a dozen methamphetamine labs in Sinaloa and conspiring to distribute cocaine and marijuana. The 32-year-old, who also allegedly ordered hits on informants, a drug trafficker, and a singer who refused to perform at his wedding, secured a court order in January blocking his immediate extradition to the U.S., under which Washington was given until March 5th to present an official request. Following the failed 2019 operation, the U.S. offered $5 million for information leading to Ovidio's arrest. The January arrest was also met with violence, leaving dozens dead. The Mexican attorney general must now file a request before the federal control judge in the state of Mexico and set a hearing date. Ovidio's lawyers are expected to try and block the extradition during the hearings at the Federal Criminal Justice Center in the coming days. El Chapo is already facing a life sentence in the U.S. after smuggling roughly 154 tons of cocaine, as well as heroin and methamphetamine, into the U.S. over the course of 25 years. He and his associates earned an estimated $14 billion during that time. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Brookings Institute. 
There's a clear difference between the United States' relationship with Mexican cartels and that of the Mexican government. While Sinaloa was still the main distributor of illicit drugs in the U.S., cartel members know that can't wage violent wars on the U.S. military and police as they do south of the border. When the U.S. government wants a drug lord, it will find him, arrest him, and put him behind bars for a long time. An establishment critical narrative comes from Jacobin. The U.S. media has an incredibly inaccurate and racialized perspective of the so-called drug war in Mexico. Drug trafficking and violence in Mexico have much more to do with how criminal networks work in conjunction with the Mexican state than what amounts to occasional military operations against said networks. Even as the U.S. and Mexican government's response has expanded and militarized over the years, drug smuggling and use in the U.S. have only increased. I wonder if his son is going to be as adept at escaping prison as his father. Well, I'll tell you what, if uh, El Chapo is not going to be escaping again anytime soon, I was doing a little research on where he is. He's at ADX Florence, which they call the uh, the Alcatraz of the Rockies. And so he's in the, the super max area. And even if you break out of there, which you couldn't possibly do, there's a regular prison right outside that. So if you broke out of that prison, you just break into another prison. <laughs> Canada bans TikTok from government devices. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Globe and Mail, CNN, Reuters, and CNA. Canada announced Monday that it's banning TikTok from all government-issued mobile devices following growing Western concerns surrounding the security of the video-sharing social media app. The government said the app, owned by Chinese firm ByteDance, presents an unacceptable level of risk to privacy and security although Treasury Board President Mona Fortier said there was no evidence of government information having been compromised. The ban will take effect on Tuesday and follow similar actions taken in the U.S. and the EU, where bans were implemented in December 2022 and last week, respectively. In response, TikTok claimed it was curious that Canada only announced the decision after the EU and the U.S. without contacting it about their concerns. A company spokesperson said it was willing to meet with government officials to discuss the matter. Last week, Canada's federal privacy watchdog, as well as three provincial counterparts, announced a probe into whether the app complies with the nation's privacy legislation. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said the decision may be the first step or the only step concerning the matter. The news comes after the Canadian Intelligence Security Service alleged that there was Chinese interference in the country's elections in 2021 prompting an increase in scrutiny surrounding China's role in the country. Those were the facts, and here are the spins. The first one is an anti-China narrative coming from Live Mint. While TikTok is extremely popular with younger generations, its Chinese ownership has caused justified fears over its potential use as a means to collect data on Westerners or promote misinformation and pro-China narratives. As China and the West are locked in an escalating technology war, Europe, the U.S., and Canada are rightly placing greater scrutiny on TikTok's security and data privacy. And the pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. Recent decision-making by Canada, the U.S., and the EU surrounding TikTok is the latest move in the West's attempts to squeeze Chinese technology companies and lead a political witch hunt. While sanctions against the app will only have a slight impact on TikTok's market value, the real losers will be the Canadians prohibited from using the platform. A nerd narrative says there's a 19% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before 2024. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. In our next story, according to a Dominion lawsuit, Rupert Murdoch says Fox hosts endorsed false election claims. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, CBS, CNN, Forbes, CNBC, and Evening Standard. Fox News controlling owner Rupert Murdoch admitted that some of the network's broadcasters endorsed false claims regarding the 2020 election results. Dominion Voting Systems is suing Fox for $1.6 billion, claiming the network made false allegations about the ballot technology company that hurt their business. While Murdoch accepted that some commentators had endorsed the claims, the company's attorneys maintain that a, quote, handful of selective quotes hold no basis for a defamation lawsuit and that executives at Fox Corporation had no role in the manner. Murdoch's remarks were made public in a legal filing as part of the lawsuit. Murdoch claimed that in hindsight, he wished Fox was stronger in denouncing claims of election fraud, with the media tycoon also describing Trump's allegations as damaging. The Delaware court filings also disclosed that Murdoch admitted to having the authority to prevent officials who controversially questioned the election results. Murdoch and his son, Fox CEO Lachlan Murdoch, have been questioned in recent months surrounding the lawsuit, alongside Fox's chief legal and policy officer, Viet Dinh. Fox News continues to claim that the core of the case, quote, remains about freedom of the press and freedom of speech. A five-week trial is slated to start on April 17th. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative from NPR Online News. It's clear from Murdoch's own admission that the media tycoon chose not to intervene and stop Fox's continued false claims surrounding the validity of the 2020 election. The picture that emerges is that both Murdoch and Fox chose to sidestep the truth in order to appease a pro-Trump audience that was angered when confronted with a loss. Fox should not have aligned itself with extremists regarding election denial. Financial Times gives us a right narrative for this story. Freedom of the press is foundational to democracy, and Fox News' right to report on the news and provide opinion and analysis is under attack. The allegations aired were extremely newsworthy at the time, and Fox gave Dominion a platform to respond. It will be extremely difficult to prove actual malice, even if a handful of individual commentators did support the claims, so Fox will undoubtedly prevail and Fox journalists will continue to do their vital job. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 48% chance that the 2024 U.S. presidential election will also be considered fraudulent by the losing party, according to the Metaculus prediction community. Our final story, Twitter is under fire for allegedly censoring Palestinian public figures. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Middle East Eye, and Shearpost.com. According to an Al Jazeera report published on Tuesday, digital rights groups are accusing Twitter and Facebook of censoring Palestinian journalists after a number of prominent accounts were suspended. On December 3rd, Washington, D.C.-based Palestinian journalist Saeed Arakat was suspended for nearly a month, which he believes was for being outspoken about Palestine and Israel. On January 8th, Nora Irakat, a Palestinian lawyer and human rights advocate, was suspended but was reinstated a day later. Twitter reportedly notified Arakat and Arakat that these suspensions were because both of their accounts had been hacked. However, they claim upon further inquiry, the social media company failed to provide any other information. Arakat served as UN spokesman in Iraq from 2005 to 2010 and has been present at State Department press briefings for nearly 20 years as Al-Quds Washington Bureau Chief, one of Palestine's most popular newspapers. In the wake of Arakat's Twitter account suspension, Meta shut down Al-Quds' Facebook page that same month, sparking more outrage from pro-Palestine advocates. 
Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. We have a pro-Palestine spin coming from ADC.org. Palestinian voices have long been silenced by tech giants, and Twitter, under Musk, has continued this trend of suppressing journalists who speak out against abuses in the Middle East. Musk purports to be a free speech absolutist, yet his regime suspended a Palestinian journalist without reason, a dangerous violation of his rights that has been alarmingly ignored by the mainstream media. And the pro-Israel spin comes from the Jewish News Service. Saeed Arakat is a dangerous peddler of propaganda whose influence isn't limited to his following online, he deliberately slandered Israel at a State Department press briefing by saying an Israeli soldier had shot point-blank at an unarmed Palestinian, when in reality the officer was firing at a terrorist, just one of his many lies that can lead to anti-Semitic violence and should not be tolerated. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Stein. Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.